It's past time that we did something of a domestic politics update. Even amidst the COVID and Afghanistan crises, we have seen some quiet dynamics start to shape themselves that will impact the elections for 2022 and potentially beyond. Short version, both sides are in the midst of civil wars of varying intensities. People are trying to figure out if there's going to be a wave election in 2022. And we are, of course, in infrastructure week forever. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. podcast listeners to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on Facebook and Instagram through the RSG feeds. So it's been a while since we've kind of done a state of the state domestic politics edition. And so I wanted to just kind of look at some of the dynamics that are happening. And there are really three topics that I want to discuss. The first is the uh, civil wars on both the Democratic and Republican side, essentially the let's you and you fight dynamic of politics. There's as much fighting as always, but a lot of it now is, is sort of in the circular firing squad direction, rather than the sides fighting each other, although they're still trying to do that as well much of the ire is directed inward. And there's some reasons for that. Second of all, we are seeing questions rise about whether the 2022 congressional elections are going to represent a wave election or not. And every time we get a poll or a special election, people are interpreting this to see whether we have a wave or do not have a wave. And the short answer is we don't know yet. And so I'll, I'll break it into that. And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about what's been going on with infrastructure negotiations. It seems like we've been in infrastructure week since sometime in the middle of the second Obama administration. People are always talking about infrastructure week. You know, infrastructure week is like Groundhog Day. It never ends. And so is anything going to pass? <laughs> and how's that, how's that going to go down? So let's start with the sort of general state of play. And the general state of play is defined by the internal conflicts that are happening on both the Democratic and Republican sides. And these conflicts are different, but they're also quite predictable given what we would have expected at the beginning of 2022. So Democrats are having a faction fight between their progressive faction and their more moderate faction. We could also break this faction down as the people who are in seats that are so deep blue that there's no way in heck a Republican could ever win them, and the people that are looking at the next elections with fear and trembling because they are in seats that are D plus five or less. And so, you know, that's that's one way of breaking that down. You know, is there an ideological difference at play here? Yeah, there is. There is between sort of center left and far left. But there's also a difference between people who are the most concerned about being primaried by people who are even more ultra left than they are, vice people who actually are going to have to run against a real Republican with a pulse in the general election in 2022 and don't want to lose their seats. So those those imperatives are different. Now, on the Republican side, the conflict, of course, resolves around the person of Donald Trump, revolves around Trump. We still have Trump trying to punish people that he thinks are insufficiently loyal to him, particularly the 10 who voted for the impeachment that came about after January 6th. Now, I said at the time I thought that impeachment was a rush job, that there were serious questions about what Trump did during and after 
the attacks on January 6th, whether he was quick enough off the mark, whether he was active enough in trying to prevent what was happening. And I would frankly like to see a real actual investigation that's nonpartisan or at least bipartisan that's trying to get to the bottom of what happened. I don't think that's what we're going to get. And, and that's not what we got with the impeachment side. Democrats decided that they could impeach the president based on a video of a speech. And that didn't work. And that was probably never going to work. And, you know, if you were going to try to rush it because you said we can't wait, well, you still didn't get things done until after Biden was sworn in. So the thing that would have made the most sense for Democrats would have been to investigate. And then if they were going to do a post-office impeachment, impeachment after Trump was out of office, you know, at least do it properly and, and do it the right way and, and take time to build your case. So, you know, do I necessarily think that voting for that impeachment was a smart thing for Republicans to do? Uh, no, because I, I didn't necessarily think it was it was a particularly well put together impeachment. And the way something like that works is you can think some, somebody is guilty of something, but you have to roll with the articles that are put in front of you. You can't just say, well, I think that he probably did something impeachable, so we'll impeach him and figure out what it was later. And I just don't think that the impeachment was particularly well put together on the part of the Democrats. Now, that being said, I don't necessarily either hold with the idea that you know, Republicans should try to turn on anybody who voted for that impeachment. It's right after January 6th. You know, these are people that have been through it, have, have seen that firsthand, and are reacting in a number of different ways to that. It's not one of those situations where I think we should be using this as a litmus test of who is and who is not, you know, a real, true conservative trademark. Because loyalty to Donald Trump actually has nothing to do with conservatism. It just has to do with loyalty to Donald Trump. Trump might think that that's the most important thing, but I, I'm not exactly sure why Republicans should agree with him that loyalty to an ex-president is the hallmark of what it means to be a Republican. Particularly given that it's blatantly obvious at this point that that is what Democrats want. Democrats want Republicans to be Trump-obsessed, and Trump wants Republicans to be Trump-obsessed. So there's there's a, a commonality of interest right now between Donald Trump and the Democratic Party. They all want the Republican Party to be entirely and singularly focused on the person of Donald Trump. And the reason for this on Trump's part is obvious, because Donald Trump's most important political principle is that Donald Trump is great, and that you should be loyal to Donald Trump, right? That is the central core of his message, is him, himself. So, you know, it's, it is what it is. You can like that or not like that. You can like Trump or not like that. But it's pretty hard to argue that... Donald Trump is not about loyalty to Donald Trump first and, you know, everything else is just a second, if at all. So, you know, he is what he is. For Democrats, they're hoping that running against an ex-president is going to somehow save their bacon in 2022. Now, they've tried this before. They tried it in 2010. You know, running against George W. Bush didn't work particularly well for them in 2010. Republicans tried running against Obama to a certain extent. didn't work particularly well for them. So this is not a strategy with a, a long and illustrious history of electoral success. But to be fair to Democrats, it's what they've got right now. And that's the, the more interesting fight right now is the fight that's happening within the Democratic Party. Okay, so in 2020, Democrats tried to make the election about Trump in the presidential. They succeeded. Republicans tried to make the election about the Democrats are being crazy. And in the House, they succeeded. And in the Senate, they succeeded. And so even after 2020, you had some of the moderates like Abigail Spanberger, for example, up in uh, Virginia 7th, talking about, look, this is killing us. This defund the police stuff is killing us. Everything that you progressives are trying to do is a problem. 
essentially the message that, that the moderates were sending to the progressives at this point was, how about you guys just shut up and let us maintain the majority? Okay, because you're not doing that in your D plus 35 seats, right? And the response from the progressives is, no, we own the party. We can pretty much do what we want. Despite the fact that we have a four-seat majority in the House and a zero-seat majority in the Senate, we're going to try to push for everything, right? This is the only chance we're going to get, so you have to fall in line and be prepared to lose your seat so that we can have generational change. And that's essentially what the progressives are telling the moderates in the Democratic Party right now, which that message is obviously being received very well. And by that, I mean, no. The moderates in the Democratic Party are not doing that. Now, the progressives are being very upfront and honest about who they are and how strong they are and how many of them there are. The moderates are being much more cagey because the moderates have a big, giant, West Virginia-sized target that they can use to distract the ire of the progressives, and that is Joe Manchin. And so let's take a look for a second at what Joe Manchin's essentially been doing since the Democrats won the two Senate seats in Georgia. And basically what Manchin has been doing is he has been running block and tackle for moderates in the House and the Senate. And basically he has been the one who has been telling progressives that they can't have the nice things that they want. All right. Joe Manchin has been Senator No. And he hasn't been Senator No necessarily because he is the only person in the Democratic caucus who thinks the way he has. He's been Senator No because he's the only person who literally does not care what the progressives think because he is in a Trump plus a billion state, right? So every time he picks a fight with the left and the Democratic Party, it's good for him. And so as a result, he's perfectly happy to take the slings and the arrows from the progressives and run cover for other Democrats, okay? So there was this question about whether, whether you know, Joe Manchin was going to switch parties. That was never going to happen. Why? Because Joe Manchin is taking one for the team. The team being Democrats who aren't in D plus a zillion seats. And that sort of has been the dynamic that has played out. The House will pass whatever they're going to pass. Manchin gives the moderates cover to vote for whatever. And then Manchin's like, yeah, we're not doing that, guys. Sorry, not going to break the filibuster for that. Nope, we're not doing that. Nope, nope, nope. I mean, that's basically the way things have been going. And sometimes Kristen Cinema from Arizona will, will join in. And also, you know, play the, the senator no role. Because again, she's in a light red state. Yes, they've got two Democratic senators, but it's a swing state, which, which outside of an election with Trump on the ballot has been sort of a lightish red. The dynamic of that is very interesting because we don't actually know how many other Democrats privately agree with Manchin. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about, for example, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Maggie Hassan could be vulnerable to a progressive primary challenger if she were to vote like Joe Manchin, but she's also very vulnerable in a general election to the Republican. So every vote that Manchin saves Hassan from having to take on this progressive nonsense gives her a better chance of threading that needle successfully. Okay, what we don't know is exactly how many people in the House are fully on board with this. But what has happened recently is that the progressives in the House have decided that two can play at that game and that they're tired of Joe Manchin crushing their hopes and dreams and preventing them from building this utopia that they've dreamed of with their four-seat majority. And they've said that basically they're going to take their ball and go home on the moderates' priorities if this is the way things are going to be. So Biden puts together this infrastructure package that's uh, stripped down. Now we get back into Infrastructure Week forever. That's actually kind of more focused on infrastructure. It's still an enormous bill. But he gets a lot of Republicans to vote for it. 
And I remember at the time, there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth on the conservative side about how Republicans had voted for this and they were giving Democrats cover and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing that Republicans realized. First of all, a fair number of them voted for it because they, they probably see some priorities in the infrastructure package that are good for their home states, right? Never underestimate the ability of senators to look at bacon for the home state as a priority. But I think Mitch McConnell voted for it because he saw that it was going to do exactly what it has done, right? So the idea that Democrats had was that they were going to have, on the one hand, they were going to have this, this pile of infrastructure that was that was the bipartisan bill and then they were going to try to pass the rest of everything that the progressives wanted through a three trillion dollar reconciliation package with no republican support and the idea was well we could do this these things as separate one will be bipartisan and, and that'll be the moderate bill and the other be the progressive bill and then everybody gets what they want and mitch mcconnell is probably sitting back presiding over the senate on the throne made out of the skulls of his enemies sipping his bourbon this is my mental image of mitch mcconnell and you you will not convince me otherwise sitting back thinking well this really doesn't look like it's gonna work so he says yeah okay good we'll vote for the infrastructure bill we'll do the bipartisan thing we'll get the credit for voting for the quote-unquote moderate bill and then we will completely oppose absolutely everything that they progressives want to do on the three trillion dollar bill so the thought here being that then the Republicans get the credit for being bipartisan, but also for opposing, you know, we're not knee-jerk opposing everything Biden wants to do, just the crazy stuff. All right? So that's the calculation. Thus far, that calculation has played itself out because neither of these bills have passed because the progressives in the House are holding up the bipartisan infrastructure package because they want the $3 trillion reconciliation package. $3 trillion, in case you're wondering, is a lot of money. It's like more money than we've spent so far in COVID levels of a lot of money on basically every priority that is on the progressive wish list and has been for ever. And so, you know, this is an absolutely stuffed full Christmas tree of a bill, you know, with all the presents under the, under the tree. And eventually, as this starts to come forward in the House, and as Pelosi's pushing for this in the House, Something changes. We start to get moderate members of the House who have heretofore just kind of been voting for whatever, recognizing that the Senate's probably going to kill it because they don't want to get progressive primary challenges, right? Now, all of a sudden, they look at this and they're like, no, no, we can't do it this time. And moderates have basically given Pelosi an ultimatum, which is either you put forward the bipartisan bill from the Senate first or none of this is going to happen. So there's a showdown. The progressives are saying... Our bill has to come first. The moderates are saying our bill has to come first. And Joe Manchin is, by the way, at the same time saying this whole $3 trillion thing, it's not a good idea. Maybe let's take a pause on that until 2022. Now, let's be very clear here. A pause until 2022 means that it's not going to happen. Because if you can't get a majority for this bill the year before an election, you're not going to get a majority for it the year of an election. And the progressives know this. They know that their best chance of getting this $3 trillion monstrosity passed was yesterday. Every day that it doesn't get passed makes it harder for them to get it passed. So they are absolutely losing their minds at the moderates in their own caucus. Now, the moderates in their own caucus are just trying to survive, right? Like <laughs> They're just trying to get reelected. You know, Premier Jayapal doesn't have to worry about a Republican challenger. AOC doesn't have to worry about a Republican challenger. Ilhan Omar doesn't have to worry about a Republican challenger. Okay. Jerry Golden does. 
He's on Trump plus six district. Spamberger does. Elaine Luria does. Okay. Josh Gottheimer does. The moderates do have to worry about this. And so even if they agreed with the progressives in principle, it would be absolutely insane for the House moderates to cave into them. Because you would essentially be giving up your seat. And, and you would be guaranteeing that there's a wave. If the progressives pass their $3 trillion wish list, it will, be, it will make the 2020 wave look like a breaker on the beach by comparison. It's just, that is a lot of money. That is a lot that you are trying to do. And people are going to look at this and freak out that it's this that you have this narrow majority and you're trying to ram through this massive change and progressives know and they just don't care because it doesn't affect them it doesn't matter how big the wave gets everybody in the progressive caucus is basically wave proof and and so they just don't care because their districts are so deeply democratic that they can survive whatever happens you know even if there's only a hundred democrats left they will be the democrats in the progressive caucus so yeah they they don't care and they, uh, they want what they want, and they want it now. So I have no idea how this is going to play out. There's probably, there's three ways that this could go, in theory. Okay, and then there's one thing that's not going to happen. What's not going to happen is that you get the $3 trillion reconciliation bill without the bipartisan package. Because it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's not going to happen. Joe Manchin might as well move out of the state and just announce his retirement the next day. If he votes for that. And if, if Manchin doesn't vote for it, it's not happening. Because there's no way that any Republican, like even a moderate like Susan Collins, the reason that you're a Republican if you're a moderate like Susan Collins is because you don't want to spend all of the money. Like you only want to spend some of the money, not all of it. And so, yeah, you're not getting any crossover support from any Republican on that massive boondoggle. And you, they don't have the votes in the Senate. Manchin has said he's not voting for it. Cinema said she's not voting for it. It's not happening. And they're probably blocking and tackling for somewhere between five to seven other Democratic senators who, if push came to shove, would also not want to vote for it because they like their jobs and would like to keep them. Okay, so that's not going to happen. So there's two ways that this could go. Well, really three, I guess. One, you could see the bipartisan bill pass. The one that was passed in the Senate was 60 votes. Yeah, almost 70 votes passed the House. And the Democrats go with a considerably scaled down reconciliation package, maybe another one, one and a half trillion, which is still, by the way, a lot of money. That is a lot of money. You're talking still about $2.5 trillion. That's like bigger than the federal budget has been in some years, right? That's money that we don't have. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. It doesn't seem to bother people. All that much that we're spending trillions of dollars that we don't have. But anyway, you know, that's one possibility. The second possibility is the only thing that gets passed is the bipartisan infrastructure deal. This is probably actually the best outcome for Democrats. It's bipartisan. It's popular. Biden can then go back and say that his major accomplishment was a bill that had 69 votes in the Senate. Honestly, it is really ridiculous that the Democrats are even trying this other reconciliation vote. You have four-seat majority in the House. You have a zero-seat majority in the Senate that is maintained entirely by Kamala Harris breaking ties. 
and you have a bill on the table that has 69 total votes that's a bipartisan infrastructure package. Like, under normal circumstances, if you had rational people making the decisions, at that point, you take the win, take your ball, and go home. And call it a day. Hurrah, we finally did infrastructure. Okay? Like, that's the obvious thing. So, of course, Democrats are not doing that. And so that's one outcome. That's a second outcome. And the third outcome is that nothing gets passed. The House completely deadlocks on this. They're not able to get anything passed. And moderates won't vote for the $3 trillion reconciliation package. Progressives say that the bipartisan bill is far too, too little, and they won't vote for it. And Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans decide we're not giving Democrats top cover on this. You know, we're not going to save Joe Biden's signature accomplishment for this. Remember, the incentives for the House and the Senate are different. Senators have an incentive to do what's best for their state. The House has always been more an area where it's easier to maintain sort of party unanimity. So that wouldn't be a totally surprising outcome. And if that happens, you know, that's, that's also not a great outcome for Democrats. So the question really becomes, at what point does Nancy Pelosi essentially tell the progressives, the game is up, knock it off, fall in line and vote? And does she have the authority to do that? Right. So Nancy Pelosi kind of is a more progressive oriented person. So her, her, her heart is there, but she's also a, a ruthless political operator who has maintained her grip over the caucus by knowing where all the bodies are buried. I remember there's an interview with one of her kids and they asked her, you know, so your mom's going to be speaker. What, what do you, you know, what do the American people need to know about your, your mom who's in this historic role again as woman speaker of the house. And her daughter was like, she'll cut you and you won't even know you're bleeding which I bet Nancy Pelosi has that on all her Christmas cards. But, you know, does she still have it, right? Because AOC and the squad, as a bunch of jumped-up freshman members-elect, decided they were going to stage a sit-in in the Speaker's office, and she didn't banish them to the outer depths of Mordor in terms of committee assignments after that. So, like, you, you've got to ask yourself whether Pelosi's past it at this point in terms of being able to control her caucus. Right. Because the one thing that Democrats have always been good about is your job as a freshman is to shut up and fall in line. And now they've got, you know, AOC, the uh, the the Republican fundraising gift that keeps on giving. Seriously, if AOC didn't exist, the Republican National Committee would have to create her. She literally exists to open her mouth and make dollars fall out for every Republican in the country. It's like Republicans used to have to work to raise funds. Now they just look for the re most recent AOC quote copy, paste, send out fundraising email, wait for the money to roll in. It's just about that easy. Like she is a fundraising machine for the other party. You know, and I guess to a certain extent, you know, your Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and Trump and, and some of the other folks are doing that for the Democrats. But like, it's hard to underestimate the degree to which Republicans are raising money off of AOC. And I would love to at some point see somebody actually do a breakdown of just how much money Republicans raised off of everything that AOC says. So, like, you know, at this point, the FEC needs to be, like, investigating her for making in-kind in contributions to the RNC every time she talks, and especially every time she tweets and does whatever you do on Instagram. But anyway, the fact that she has been able to get this much of a profile and dictate terms to House leadership as a no-account backbencher with no legislative accomplishments whatsoever, who makes faces on Instagram, kind of makes you wonder if Pelosi's passed it. Because the thing that should have happened like about six months ago 
is that she essentially told the progressives, you're going to do what I say or else. And that hasn't happened, right? She is not exercising control of her caucus, which is why they're in this position in the first place. The most important thing that you can do when you have a really, really tiny majority is maintain discipline because you cannot afford defectors. And she has not been able to maintain discipline against the progressives. Now, to be fair to Pelosi, what's she going to do to them? They're all in extremely deep blue districts. She's not going to primary challenge her own members. So, you know, what's she going to do? Give them bad committee assignments? These aren't people who, like, came to Washington, D.C. because they want to make important reforms to the banking sector. These are people who came to Washington, D.C. because being in Congress was easier than getting a gig on MSNBC. Okay? None of the, none of the real leadership of the progressives, like, let's be very honest, none of the squad types, not Jayapal from Washington, or Mark Pocan, or, you know, whatever his name is, the, the dude who's, who's there, you know, not any of the, the prominent progressive types in the House. None of these people are known for their legislative acumen. None of these people are really known for getting stuff done. None of these people are known for going on committees and doing the hard work and being workhorses. There are Democrats who do that. There are even, you know, members that are probably more to the left that do that. But these people are not it. Like, if people are talking about you in terms of you're a member and you're in the media spotlight, it's probably because you're not legislating. And so that really kind of indicates that Pelosi doesn't have as much leverage over these folks because the incentives have changed. And maybe this leads to a broader question about Congress. No, this does lead to a broader question about Congress. If you've got the celebritization of the legislative branch, where people are more interested in what they can do on Snapchat than what they can do on the House Banking Committee, we've got a problem. But, you know, again, we go back to Congress needs to do its job. I feel like that's a common theme here. So it is an interesting situation, and I don't see how Pelosi can bring the progressives to heel. Because they don't care. They don't care if she succeeds. They don't care if they make the majority, if they keep the majority. They don't care if the Biden administration succeeds because they're getting the same number of social media hits as they would regardless. Their incentive structure is different. Okay? Their incentive structure is not, we want to pass a bunch of stuff. Their incentive structure is the revolution will be tweeted. So it doesn't matter to them whether anything policy-wise succeeds. And so, you know, I don't see how Pelosi gets around that. Now, Republicans shouldn't be dancing a jig too much because, like, they've got their own clown show on the other side. So unless you get a really big majority where you can afford to lose those folks, Kevin McCarthy could be in the exact same situation if he ends up speaker in a couple of years. You know, except their, you know, Fruits and Nuts caucus is going to be a, a very different, you know, group of people. It'll be your Marjorie Taylor Greens. It'll be your Louis Gohmerts. It'll be Paul Gozar, maybe. Madison Cawthorn, who really desperately wants to be the AOC of the right. But I, I but he he just he has I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Madison Cawthorn. You just you have not raised enough money for the DNC yet to qualify as as the AOC of the right. You you your opponents have to raise at least at least 15 or 20 million dollars off of you for you to qualify for AOC status. Right? You've you've got to gift, you know, at least at least the budget for a month or two to the other party. They're, they're operating expenses you know, plus, plus a couple of swanky dinners at an expensive Washington restaurant for a month or two, right? Just buy the stupid stuff that you say on social media to qualify as an AOC of the right. 
and and Mass and Cawthorn, you know, bless his heart, he's just not there yet. He's he's given it a good shot. So you know, Republicans are not immune to this problem. The basic problem, right? The basic civil war on both sides, it kind of boils down to a, a, a more nuts and bolts type division that runs across both the left and the right between the people who actually feel like they have a responsibility to try to run the country and the people who want to pretend that they're running the country on social media slash what used to be TV. You know, the people who, who think that they are in an episode of the West Wing versus the people who recognize that they actually have a job to do on Capitol Hill. Sometimes those things blur together, but there are workhorses and there are show horses. And there are a lot more of the latter than there are of the former, it seems like. And so, you know, that's basically where we are. And the Progressive Caucus and the left of the Democratic Party is more interested in posturing than it is in actually trying to advance any of its policy priorities. And that's, that's evident. And, you know, as somebody who leans more to the right, I say, thank God for that. You know, if they were actually interested in trying to make incremental tweaks to policy, if they were buckled down and, and trying to you know, implement their policies via doing the hard work, you know, if AOC put her nose to the grindstone and actually like learned how to be effective from Nancy Pelosi, we'd be in a much more dangerous situation because they'd be able to move policy even more dramatically in their direction. You know, I, I, I love it when the Looney Tunes on the extremes are doing things on social media because it means that they're not doing things that will affect us down the line in committee. So great. Great for that. Glad to see that they're uh, living down to expectations in that way and that, that we are focused here on performance art rather than actually trying to advance progressive policy goals. So good, good, good times on that. I don't know which of these outcomes is actually going to happen in terms of infrastructure. And that leads me into my next comment, which is this, this last topic of, is there going to be a wave? right? We're waiting on the wave to see if there's going to be a wave or not. Every time there's a special election, every time, you know, with the California recall, and, and then of, co of course, again, with Virginia governor's race, people are going to be interpreting the entrails of the election to determine how things are going to happen in 2022. Now, this is understandable because it's the only data point we have. It's also something that almost always tends to be overinterpreted. So let's flash back to the 2009-2010 cycle, right? So in 2009, you had special elections in New York for the Kirsten Gillibrand seat. You know, she was appointed to the Senate, so her House seat. Democrats won the special. You had a special election for John McHugh's seat, also in New York. This was a three-way between Deeds Gozafava, Doug Hoffman, and Bill Owens. Democrats won that special election. You know, so, okay, no wave, no wave, no wave. Then Republicans win the Virginia and New Jersey gubernatorial elections. Oh, wait, there might be a wave. Oh, my goodness. Right? So... Now everybody's talking about, oh, Republicans are, are on the you know, resurgent. And then you had the Scott Brown special election win in, in uh, Massachusetts. It's not the Kennedy seat, it's the people seat. And then it's like, oh my gosh, Republicans are winning in Massachusetts. They're about to win everywhere. And then you had a special election in Pennsylvania. Uh, Representative John Murtha passed away and his chief of staff, the Democrat running in that special election, wins the seat. And so, oh my gosh, this is proof. There's not going to be a wave. Pat Toomey's going to lose his Senate seat. I remember smart people saying that at the time. This, this was indicative that, you know, Pat Toomey was going to lose. And, you know, this was, was just proof that there wasn't going to be a wave. And then 2010 came and there was a wave. <laughs> okay. You know, then we had 2014. In 2014, Chris Christie won re-election, but Democrats won the Virginia governor's race. Oh, well, you know, this is uh, maybe maybe not going to be, be as bad of a, a year for Democrats. And you had 
you know, inconclusive special election type results. Not as many of them that I can recall from that cycle. But then the election came and Democrats lost the Senate. Democrats lost more seats in the House. Okay, 2018. Again, you didn't have as many special elections. But 2018 is probably the clearest picture. Democrats won the Virginia and New Jersey gubernatorial races. And, you know, we had a wave. But did we? Did we have a wave in 2018? We had a wave in the House. But in the Senate, Republicans gained seats. Okay, in, in a president's first midterm. Bottom line is, is in, it's very hard to interpret signs in the off year or even in the run-up to the election and determine what's going to happen. So people are, are over-interpreting. We had the special election in New Mexico. Democrats won that within expected parameters. We had the California recall. It looked like Republicans were maybe close. Democrats won. Now, you'll remember I said when we talked about this over the summer, I believe I said in one of, one of my previous podcasts, if Democrats win the recall election, it doesn't tell us anything. If Republicans win the recall election, and if Newsom is recalled, it may tell us something. Okay? Democrats won, so it doesn't really tell us anything. And it really doesn't. Democrats are, are looking at this as proof that, well, you know, we, we're, we're safer than we thought. If, Republic, if Democrats just don't take the elections for granted, they can dump a bunch of money on it and remind everybody that Trump is bad and they'll win. Well, here's the thing. You want a recall election in California. It's California. It's the bluest state in the country. If Democrats beat Youngkin and, and Democrats win the Virginia governor's race, they're going to say, oh, this is, this is proof there's not going to be a wave. Okay, Virginia is a light blue state. All things being equal in a neutral year, you would expect Democrats to win the Virginia governor's race. And in a year that was not neutral, in 2014, which was not a good year for Democrats, they won the Virginia governor's race. The last time Republicans won the Virginia governor's race was in 2009. And Bob McDonnell ran an almost perfect campaign. And Democrats had a very uninspiring nominee in 2009. Youngkin is running a pretty okay campaign. He hasn't really made any huge missteps that I can see, but I don't know that it's been as pitch perfect as McDonnell. And McAuliffe is stronger as a nominee than Craig Deeds was in 2009. Candidates still matter. Okay. So I don't think that Republicans are as favored in 2021 as they would have been in 2009. That doesn't mean that Youngkin can't win, but I would not be surprised if McAuliffe won. I would also not be surprised if he lost. If McAuliffe wins, that doesn't mean that Democrats are safe in 2022. And if Youngkin wins, that doesn't mean that there's definitely going to be a wave. If Youngkin wins, it is more indicative of the possibility of a wave than if McAuliffe wins. That's about all we can say about it, okay? Bottom line is, here, here are the facts that we know. Number one, presidents usually lose seats in a midterm, in their first midterm. Last time that hasn't been true was 2002, that was after 9-11. Okay, so presidents usually lose seats in their midterm. Number two, Republicans wouldn't have to win that many seats to take back the House. Number three, redistricting is going to change things, and it's very possible that just by virtue of seat change, Florida and Texas are going to gain some seats, New York's going to lose some seats. You know, Republican legislators are drawing the maps in, in several states, Democrats in fewer states. Just by virtue of redistricting in a neutral environment, there could be enough seat change that Republicans would naturally take the House by a very slim majority. Okay, so the way to bet is that Republicans will take the House in 2022. 
Okay. If you had to put money down on it today, that's where you'd put the money because you have redistricting, you have the general tendencies of midterms, even apart from a wave election, and you have the incredibly narrow nature of the majority that Democrats have. Okay. So the, the way to bet is for a Republican takeover of the House. Democrats, by the way, also know this, which is why they put the entire Christmas tree, roots and all, everything in the Christmas stockings, up to and including the nasty black licorice candies. They put the whole thing in their reconciliation bill because they figured they get one shot. They expect to lose the House. If they expected they had a chance of keeping the House, even the progressives who are grandstanding would probably realize, yeah, we might get another bite at the apple. Okay, but part of the reason they're being so maximalist is because they're pretty darn sure this is the only chance they get. And then also combine that in with the fact that, you know, social media grandstanding and they don't really care if they win. But they need to appear as though they are making a fight for the whole enchilada because this is probably the only chance they get and everybody knows it. That doesn't mean that there's a wave. A wave means that you see Republicans taking seats in areas where we would not expect it. And so Republicans can have a good night without it being a wave. A wave also has an impact on the Senate, and the Senate playing field is much more jumbled. And it's, you know, we, we won't know how most of that is going to play out until spring of 2022, once we have a good sense of who all the candidates are. I couldn't even begin to tell you, beyond a couple of races, what the ones to watch are at this point. Which won't probably stop me from doing a podcast on Senate races to watch before we get to that point. Bottom line is... I don't know if there's any evidence thus far that indicates whether there's going to be a wave, but we go back now to infrastructure. That's going to have an impact. There are two narratives that you want to avoid if you're the Democrats. You want to avoid the narrative that we're so incompetent that we can't get anything done. And you want to avoid the narrative that we're literally bringing about the dawn of the revolution. People don't like revolutionary change. Okay? And people were already not super thrilled about the Democrats' agenda. Remember, if you're a Democrat, you were elected to not be Donald Trump. If you're Joe Biden, you were elected to not be Donald Trump. You fulfilled your mandate on January 21st. Congratulations. Okay. Your agenda has never been super popular. So the dangers of for Democrats are either passing nothing or passing too much in terms of gaining seats, like just purely in terms of politics. Obviously, if you're progressive, you want everything passed. And if that means you have to lose the House and the Senate, you're, you're probably willing to make that trade-off because it's harder to get rid of government spending than it is to add it in. But you are very much looking at a solution set where there's two bad outcomes on either end for Democrats. So they need to be somewhere in the middle of that. Now, if they land somewhere in the middle of that, so those would be the two outcomes discussed above, you know, earlier in the podcast, one where they get the bipartisan bill plus something else, and the other where they get the bipartisan bill and that's all they get. Those are the two outcomes you need. You need one of those two outcomes. Which means that you have to have you have to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed in the House, and that like that should be the overriding imperative for for the Democrats. Nothing else really matters to them in these infrastructure negotiations. You have to get that one passed, because if you get that one passed, then you've avoided the we got nothing done outcome, and you've minimized the likelihood of the we did too much outcome. Right, and this is why McCarthy has no incentive to allow his caucus to provide any votes for Democrats on infrastructure. Because from McCarthy's perspective, the best outcome would be for the Democrats to get nothing done. Because then they, he gets the benefit of, of they look incompetent, but he also gets the benefit of you don't have to, if you take the speakership, try to spend the first year or two of your time in office there 
undoing everything they just did, knowing the fact that undoing government spending is very difficult. Okay, so he's got no incentive to allow his caucus to support the infrastructure bill. Unless Democrats can give the Republicans something they want. And it does not seem like Pelosi is going to have any interest in, in doing that. You know, th Thus far, she's been mu much more interested in trying to appease the progressives than the Republicans. But if things get bad enough, if it looks like progressives are really not going to play ball on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, at what point does she cross the aisle and try to figure out if she can work a, a deal with the minority leader? And what concessions does she have to make? Because they're going to have to be concessions. And if you're McCarthy and the, and the Republican House leadership, you extort as many concessions out of that as you possibly can. It's the best point of leverage that you're going to have. You can probably still retake the House even if you do vote for that, but you better get something for it. And something substantive. So that's also going to be a test of Kevin McCarthy's leadership and whether he's got the chops to, to be Speaker. Uh, how he handles this will we'll partially determine that. Okay, so... That's a wrap for this domestic politics review episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast providers. Find us on all the social media places mentioned above. Got some exciting episodes coming up. So that's going to close this out. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.